Hi there, I'm your host, Kieran Koritala. Would you like to attend a conference with some of the leading minds in higher education? Then join us at this year's N Squared event. At this event, we'll feature presentations and panels from the leading minds in higher education. We'll feature CEOs committed to higher education and panelists like chief information officers, chancellors, and presidents at leading universities and colleges. To learn more about this in-person event in Atlanta, check out nsquared.events. That's N-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot events. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kieran Kuritala. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. I have a very, very amazing guest for us today, Dr. Ramon Goings. Dr. Goings is an assistant professor in the language, literacy, and culture, and in the interdisciplinary program at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Goings' research interests are centered on exploring academic and social experiences of gifted or high achieving black males from pre-K all the way to PhD, diversifying the teacher and school leader workforce and investigating the contributions of historically black colleges and universities. Dr. Goings is an author of over 50 scholarly publications, including four books. His scholarship has been featured in leading academic and popular press outlets, including Teachers College Record, Adult Education Quarterly, Gifted Child Quarterly, Inside Higher Education Weekly, and Diverse Issues in Higher Education. Dr. Goings, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate the invitation. So you are a wealth of knowledge on many things that we talked about in this podcast all the time, whether it's on historically black colleges and universities or students that are gifted versus non-gifted, which we should call it, frankly, I think that labeling itself is misnomer and we'll talk about that as well. But I wanna to talk to you a little bit about your latest initiative, Down Dissertation. Can you talk to us a little bit about Down Dissertation and why you decided to tackle that systemic problem for higher education? Yeah, so what ended up happening for me and why I chose to go into supporting folks with the dissertation process is that almost 50% of students who start a doctoral program don't finish. And it's not because of the coursework, right? Everyone is real structured in your coursework, similar to a master's program. But after your coursework, you have to write what's called your dissertation. It's a large research project to show your independence as a scholar. And that's where people get stuck. It's not uncommon to have people who have been at the dissertation process for seven to 10 years and have not finished their degree. With that problem, uh, when I was a doctoral student at Morgan State University, I too actually struggled with writing with a lot, like a lot of my clients do. And what ended up happening was I started to study writing. I became a better writer, started publishing. And then my professors were saying, hey, go see Ramon. He kind of knows what he's doing. He's figured this thing out. And so a lot of the students in my program who were a little bit behind me would come to me for editing support. And I just would edit their documents, edit their papers. And I realized like I'm actually coaching them more so than I am doing the edits because they were like learning from what I was telling them. So I'm like, hmm, there might be something to this. And at first I wasn't charging. And then people are like, no, you need to charge for your services. I'm like, okay, there's a business to this. And then I started kind of learning. All right. I started as an editor charging for edits on papers. Then I started doing dissertation edits. And then from there, it kind of got into coaching and, and it's transformed over time. So I've been at this for about eight, 
eight, nine years now and just evolved a little bit over time as I've gotten more comfortable with certain aspects of the business. Um, but I did at the root of it, I, I started this to support that other 50% of students who are not finishing because you're spending thousands of dollars in tuition and the, the fact that you don't have a degree to show for it means that there's some, some support that is needed that your doctoral program might not offer. Well, I didn't do my doctoral program, but I did my master's in uh, computational chemistry from University of Illinois. And I still remember the first draft of my you know, dissertation or thesis or whatever you want yeah. to call it. And I took it to Dr. Hoffinger, late Dr. Hoffinger, and he took that document. I cannot express how grateful I felt for his patience, but, but there was one page of this document. Every page obviously had like five to six edits, but there's one page of the document where he went through every sentence and rewrote it. And I felt as much as I was embarrassed by it, I felt sad about it. But I was also grateful that I had an advisor like that. So that brings me to the next question. You know, isn't that what the advisors are for? You know, or am I misunderstanding it because of the great advisor I had under Dr. Hoffinger? Yes. So at the root of it, I honestly shouldn't be a business, right? Because typically when you're a doc student, you have an advisor, like you mentioned, who's there to guide you through the dissertation process. But the reality is for faculty is that depending on your institution type, you might have 20 advisees. So it's literally impossible to support all those students to give them the individual attention that they need all the time. And so that's where we provide support for our clients as well as well as work for universities to help with their doctoral programs, because we know that sometimes they need augmentation to the services they provide. But just with that, so we definitely provide, and there's definitely a need where honestly there shouldn't be, but to add to your point about not being, you know, the writing part where your advisor like kind of wrote through your paper, like I have an experience, I share this with my clients and people, anybody I talk to, so I had a professor in my first year in a doctoral program, uh, submitted one of my papers and then on page three, and I kept all the papers. So I show people the scanned version of this. And on page three, he wrote a huge X on across the, all the whole page. And they say, you need to see a writing coach immediately. Right. And I just was like distraught. Like, I couldn't believe, like, I, I thought I was a good writer. I did a master's program. I did pretty good in there. I thought I was a good writer, but he carved my paper up. And then he wrote on the margin, you need to see a writing coach and editor immediately. And so, you know, I was a little hard headed. So I said, rather than do what he said, I'm going to figure it out. And so I just studied writing. I read one article every day for a whole year to study like vocabulary, to study sentences, to study paragraphs, to really like build my writing chops. And that's how I overcame that particular obstacle with writing. No, I think you're absolutely correct. That's why I think I was so excited when I got a chance to talk to you. Yes. You know, you're right that my advisor was an exception because most advisors will tell you like, yeah, your chemical equation should be different or your statistics are misnumbered or stuff like that. Or you need to put your citations better. They're not going to get into the details of how to write because they're not English professors. Right. So I think that's why I like about it. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the dissertation also on my own struggles trying to write my personal article. So I was looking through your website and I, I saw this excerpt and I really like you to expand on it. On your website, you talked about 14 proven strategies that will help the student navigate the dissertation process and finish in record time. First of all, I didn't know that many strategies are possible, but some of the strategies you outlined were how to manage your busy schedule, strategies to overcome perfection and procrastination, right? The science and art of selecting a dissertation chair and committee members, 
which I knew nothing about, and how to prepare you and your family for dissertation proposal and final defense. First of all, I want to hear more about the 14 strategies, but just seeing these strategies outlined in a simple form like that, especially about how to prepare your family and yourself for dissertation, that often goes unsaid. So let's talk about each of these or any of these, if you would like, because you know, they are important for dissertation, but they're also important for if you are trying to write a novel or a short story or a poem, because they all apply everywhere. So I want to talk to you about how you came up with the strategies and what these strategies really are. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote 14 Secrets to a Done Dissertation. I wrote this book based on my own experience going through the dissertation process and then also coaching now over 100 doctoral students through the dissertation. Right. And so I wanted something and I wrote this book to be a manageable, something that you can easily read, that's easily digestible, no academic language and straight strategy for doctoral students to get through. And as you mentioned, it's applicable to all sorts of disciplines. I have a formula, right, for the dissertation process. I call it the people process product formula. And oftentimes people, when they think about the dissertation or a novel or anything, they think about the end result, the product, right, that you'll have from it. But particularly for the dissertation, you don't realize that there are people involved. And you have to understand the process. And I, I would always argue that if you don't have the right people and you don't understand the process, you will never have a good product. And so that's what the book is really is teaching folks the strategy of how to select the right people, where it comes from your dissertation committee members, to also preparing your family. Those are people that are part of your process that we don't consider. And then, then from there, making sure that you understand the process that's happening so that you don't get caught up in these barriers that keep people in doctoral programs for you know, seven to 10 years. So that's kind of like the mindset of the book, but just some like actionable strategies, um, one around family, right? I talk about experience, one of my clients uh, who is a busy professional and a mom, and she had to figure out how does she balance being a mom with being busy at work with writing the dissertation. And she came to the realization that when her children would go to swim practice, she needed to bring her laptop because when they were swimming, even though she's there supporting, she could watch a little bit that she took that time to then actually write her dissertation. She had an hour uninterrupted from anyone with their kids at, at swim practice. So it's those type of things that I wanted people to think about to plan their schedule so they can finish and make sure they're not spending thousands of tuition with no progress to show for it. Yeah, I mean, again, so much of this is also about self-discipline, right? For example, how to not procrastinate, how to make sure that you schedule it around. I heard this strategy by one of the person that does coaching for people who want to write creative writing. And one of the strategies uh, she recommended was to enroll your parents or friends to be your first critic, where when you write something, you can ask them, you know, how they felt, like what type of uh, emotional en engagement they got. But it's harder to do that dissertation when you're trying to write some dissertation on, I don't know, theory of relativity or something. <laughs> you can't ask them to like give concrete feedback on that. So how do you get like peer review done? Are you the peer review when they start doing their first drafts or dissertation? Yeah, so what I recommend for doc students when you're going through this process, and I talk about how to find these people in the book, is that you need what's called, a, I call it accountability partner, and you need a reality check partner. So your accountability partner is someone either in your doctoral program, maybe at another university, could be a professor, could be someone else that provides accountability for you to keep writing, and they could provide 
that support when you submit something, right? So in my program, I had a colleague named Dr. Larry Walker, and we went through our whole program together, and we we sent each other copies of our dissertation throughout the process. So if I wrote a section, say, Larry, take a look at this. If he wrote a section, say, Ramon, take a look. And that's how we pushed each other. He was my accountability partner. And I recommend that every doc student have that to get through the program. And then aside from that, you need a reality check partner. And I say this because you can have what I coined in the book, dissertation intoxication, which means that you spend so much time on a dissertation, you become so intoxicated by it that you lose track of everything else in your life responsibilities go by the wayside. He's like, I'm so focused on getting done. And so you need someone, a reality check partner to say, you know what? All right, this is, today is the day you need to take a break. We need to go out. We need to do something different to get your mind off of things. And I think those are two important people we need in place. And then in my program, I actually teach people how to identify those people. And then my program, just as a structural component, provides that support as well with feedback on the writing and getting that kind of accountability support to get through the process. Yeah, I mean, the more you talk about it, right? Everything you say when at the first glance can apply to somebody trying to write a book yeah. or somebody trying to do a project, but a lot of it applies to life itself or work itself. Like how many people put their life aside or their kids aside or spouses or partners aside to just focus on their one mission or purpose in life? A lot of things that you're talking about have nothing to do with dissertation. It can actually be applied to how we go about life itself. Do you feel that way or am I off target there? No, you're right on target. I was at a business retreat uh, about two weeks ago and uh, one of the facilitators said, you know what, Ramon, like, I know you, you're actually focused on the dissertation, but honestly, like if you had the brand, it's actually see you more as a productivity person. So like helping people be more productive and just like that applies to across all aspects of life, not just dissertation. So, you know, it gave me a different perspective. So I just had that light bulb go off. You know, I was in this dissertation mode, like focused on supporting doc students, but I think the skill set, what I'm teaching people applies beyond just the dissertation. Yeah. I mean, it's like the things that you talked about, not getting into perfectionism or procrastination that can apply to anything. The art of selecting, you know, dissertation chair or committee members, obviously that sounds like that's focused on dissertation, but you know, I think the things you talked about with respect to peers and partners, they, they all are very powerful. And I really appreciate you taking this time to build a strategy like this. And uh, more we can think about how we can apply these life strategies for other things as well. I would love to hear it. Switching topics a little bit about your focus on diversity on HBCUs and gifted students. Can we talk a little bit about where we are wrong with respect to, let's talk about labeling things like gifted student. You know, on one hand, we think that gifted student is a good positive thing that we are saying, but it's really just a indicator we assign to a student based on some relative or random metrics we assign to the student. But then again, the bigger problem I see with assigning somebody as a gifted student is that other student is what, ungifted, right? So I feel like that label is, more harsh than it should be. So how do we change that dynamic? We certainly want to allow a student to say that you are doing great, but on the same ground, we don't want to diss another student who is trying their best, but he's actually the wrong cohort. He's not as passionate about it, or he has some real challenges at home but still give them the support they need instead of just labeling them as ungifted or otherwise. 
Yeah, so I think giftedness is a, is a complex concept, but I think if we can agree, like there definitely are children that in terms of giftedness is not just about intellectual ability. I think one time when we think about giftedness, most times it's about intellectual ability. But there are folks that are gifted in other ways, like leadership qualities is a form of giftedness. Also, those students who are gifted in music, you know, arts. So there's other places that people are gifted. And we, there are just some students that are quite frankly very exceptional in a particular area. And the fact that they need that extra push, it might be helpful to be in a different type of environment where they can get that acceleration because the traditional schooling might be a little too slow for their giftedness in a particular area. So I'm not necessarily concerned with the label per se. I'm just concerned about who gets attached with that label because oftentimes you look at the data, white and Asian children are more likely to be overrepresented in gifted education where black and brown students are not, in particularly in the U.S. context. I'm always addressing like widows and inequities. Why is that happening? And a lot of times in a lot of districts, it's because of teacher referral. Um, so now if we're leaving the, the uh, opportunity to, to see who's identified as giftedness up to teachers. Now it's very subjective. And depending on the teacher, if they feel like they have good behavior, sometimes that, that is a, a marker of giftedness versus them have intellectual ability or music ability or whatever that ability is. Um, so yeah, I'm always concerned with like, how do we identify students? Like the metrics that you talk about, a lot of times we use these IQ centered metrics that don't often capture the students who don't subscribe to like typical middle-class norms. A lot of those questions are based on middle-class individuals. So it's a lot of issues I have in terms of who gets identified and how they get identified, not necessarily like the term of giftedness per se. Hi there, I'm your host, Kieran Koritala. Would you like to attend a conference with some of the leading minds in higher education? Then join us at this year's N-squared event. At this event, we'll feature presentations and panels from the leading minds in higher education. We'll feature CEOs committed to higher education and panelists like chief information officers, chancellors, and presidents at leading universities and colleges. To learn more about this in-person event in Atlanta, check out n-squared.events. That's n S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot events. You're talking about an important point there because I think the scale itself is a little tilted, right? For example, I was uh, talking to my daughter last night. When you look at when somebody, even a homeless person, speaks in a British with a British English or, you know, with a French accent, you know, we automatically give them better credit because of some kind of a inherent assumption, understanding that, you know, Europeans are sophisticated or civilized or whatever. Then again, if you see a Oriental person or any other uh, East Asian uh, person, including Indian, with a thick accent, you'll automatically say, well, you know, they're inferior. But the English is probably just the same, right? The quality of their English is probably just the same, if anything. But we automatically assign associate some traits with the way somebody speaks, the way somebody looks, the way somebody dresses. And that's probably goes into this mislabeling or mischaracterization that, yeah, uh, before you even look at the person, you already judge that they are not gifted or otherwise. So how do we break that? Like, how do we do a more of a blind analysis on a student uh, when the student is with the teacher eight hours a day in the classroom? It's almost impossible. Right. 
there's so many ways. I think a lot of the research now is, is getting away from intellectual based tests, like IQ based tests, because there's so many other ways to identify gifted children. And a lot of times it's through sometimes non, um, well, tasks that don't require you to read. Because a lot of times when we look at these tests, they're based on reading comprehension. And so it's like the fact that if a question has something about pasture, right? I'm from a city. I, I don't know anything about a pasture. I never lived in anywhere that had a pasture. I still haven't. And so it's just kind of like that whole thing. If I read the questions, I'm, like, I'm off. I would not qualify, you know? So it's like those types of things um, really get in the way. And then around the teacher piece, I think just teachers, we all bring our own, you know, biases into the work. I think it's just as teachers, we have to really be willing to address those as we're going through our craft to look at our own data, say, wow, I've been a teacher for five years. I've never referred someone with African-American to gifted program. Why is that? What did I, but if I look at my suspension data, does it look the opposite? I have a lot of suspensions or a lot of disciplinary referrals. Why is that? And they're really interrogating ourselves. I think the internal work that we do will then show up externally in how we support our students. And it's hard because some of them might be well-intentioned teachers, but a lot of the pattern recognition we build into ourselves is based on the sample size we see in front of each other, right? So you can see that, I don't know, 15 Caucasian kids this way or 25 brown kids this, did this way and you automatically associate that the next Caucasian or colored kid will do something that fits the pattern. And you might be right eight out of 10 times, but those two times you're wrong is where the cost is. How do we become more blind to color? It's not a problem we can solve right away, but that's a discussion we should have. You did some research on HBCUs, right? So how does this differ in a historically black college and university when you have majority of students are African-Americans, if you will? Is there a better equality, if you will, for in an HBCU school when compared to a non-HBCU school? Yeah, so it's interesting. One thing about HBCUs that people often don't recognize just because of the title, they're like, oh, it's majority black. But there are a lot of HBCUs that are not majority black. They're actually, most of the the most diverse institutions that are in the United States, right? And so I think first we have to think about our population is very diverse at HBCUs, but then I think what makes them unique is that uh, they center the Black experience in all aspects of the campus. So it's not only about part of campus life in terms of fraternities, sororities, uh, activities on campus, but it's also infused in your classes. So your professors address the Black experience in all facets, whether that's in science education to history to, you know, whatever your discipline is, you get it from that perspective. And the school, a lot of times professors have a very much equity-oriented mindset. So they're helping students to see, like, how do we leverage, let's say, your skill set in business to not only create a profitable business, but then use it to impact your community. So it's those connections and things I think make the HBCU experience very unique. And something that I think other institutions need to be cognizant of, if they say they want to diversify their student population and they don't have activities, they don't have supports in place to support those students that come from uh, black and brown communities, then we're doing a disservice to the students. I like the idea I mean, because I think I've heard it uh, from other podcasts that when you look at role models, right, for example, uh-huh. who's the Shakespeare in the black literature? I know he's there, but that's not portrayed as much as you know, Shakespeare in every time there's literature, there's a African-American version of Emily Dickinson. There's an African-American version of you know, the leading actors. Um, but there is so much role modeling around a Caucasian stereotype of a perfect poet or perfect actor or perfect dancer. 
that needs to change in, in our discussion that allows people, I think, to be more open for, you know, gifted students from coming anywhere or gifted poets or uh, writers to come from everywhere. Is that what you're, what you're thinking is one of the prescriptions, if you will, for changing the dynamic of uh, the Black experience? Yeah, I think that folks, that have, one, have to see like that the original of the Black community comes from all facets of life. Oftentimes, it's pigeonholed in entertainment, sports. Typically, those are the main two. We don't see other aspects of life. And so I think uh, a lot of my work, I look to disrupt those narratives so that we can see Black students in K-12, as well as higher education, we can see them as our lawyers, our doctors, our college professors, our chemists, our, our biologists, like in all these areas. I think that's very important. As you mentioned, role modeling is important. It's hard to be who you can't see. And so I'm always cognizant about that in my work. So I, my research is just centered on disrupting those narratives so we can see an alternative way of how life can work. You're definitely thinking on the right way on setting the role models and and making sure that everybody's aware of them. I really appreciate what you've done. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your books? Um, I know I talked a little bit about your done dissertation. Sure. Are there other books that you would like to highlight on A, what those books are about and uh, why you decided to write them? Yeah, so I have a couple of edited books that uh, focus on uh, various different topics. So I have one book uh, around graduate education at historically black colleges and universities. And so in that book, we actually have chapters from graduates of historically black colleges and universities who went there for graduate school to talk about their experience in various uh, disciplines, so from lawyers to those who got their doctorate in education to all over medical school. So we have a different perspective because a lot of literature wasn't there on graduate schools and uh, for HBCUs, they overwhelmingly produce, you know, a high percentage of, of Black individuals who have uh, terminal degrees or professional degrees. Um, so we wanted to highlight that. So that book talks about that from the student perspective. I have another book that focuses on President Obama and his uh, contributions to the political landscape. So it's a book that we look at his presidency from various aspects, from education, to politics, to policy, kind of all over various, we have historians that wrote chapters, so kind of very a comprehensive look at his presidency. Uh, let's see what other books. I have two more books. Uh, one is on uh, how do we create and sustain K-12 school partnerships? Because in the schools, for those who are listening, if you're a teacher, you know that a lot of times as a teacher, you may talk to the school counselor sometimes, you may talk to your principal, but if you know, oftentimes you don't get to talk to both of them all together. So there's like this missing link in schools. And so this book is really focused on how do we create those partnerships between teachers, principals, school counselors, and the community to create better schools for, for kids. That's amazing. So it looks like you have a body of knowledge and commitment to education. What led you to do that? Because I'm always enamored by people who are, you know, there's always a lot of quotes about, you know, find what you love and do it for work or some, you know, BS yeah. comments like that, right? Yeah. It sounds good on paper and everybody laughs at them. But I feel like, you know, what I'm doing is something I'm passionate about, but I want to hear from like, what made you commit yourself for education and uh, make this your life journey and life passion? Yeah. So my background is actually, I went to college. I was a, a basketball player and a music major, right? And so I wanted a college that would allow me to major in music and then play on the basketball team. And so going into college, I wanted to become Quincy Jones. And so he's a music producer, famous music producer. He did Michael Jackson Thriller and a number of other Michael Jackson's albums. And right. And so I wanted to be Quincy. And they said, oh, 
you know, if you get a degree in music, you'll have that arranging ability. And so I, I, I did that. And I went to Lynchburg College, now University of Lynchburg. And my sophomore year, I went to music education as my major. So I needed the education as a backup plan. That was always my backup plan. And then I go into a practicum where we had to go into schools and work with kids. And I went to like a second grade classroom. I started teaching music with the kids. I was like, I love this. And it kind of shifted me in a, the education route um, in a way I didn't think. And so, you know, from there, I finished college and I went to become, there were no teaching jobs. So I couldn't teach at first. So I ended up being a uh, social work, uh, youth foster care and youth probation counselor. And I still was working with kids, still kind of honing my craft on how to support kids. Well, then when I got back into teaching, finally, it just like it was my passion. I loved what I was doing. I love the impact I could have on kids. Like literally now I have kids that are messaging me saying, you know, I just graduated from college. You know, I talked to maybe like seven, eight years ago. And just to see that maturity and development of them is something I didn't expect. So, yeah, that that one experience going into the classroom with kids shifted me towards education. That's amazing. Yeah, I agree. I think I can I can only imagine the type of stories you hear where uh, a student can probably come to you and say, I wouldn't have graduated my PhD if not for you. I'm pretty sure if not for my professor, I wouldn't have had my thesis completed because I was terrible at it. I can totally understand how you molded your own passions into a life journey. And I'm really grateful for somebody like you to build character because it's not just about dissertation. It's not just about writing. It's really about building a discipline that will carry with them for the rest of their lives. On all your life cases, you've probably seen is there a specific student or test case you want to bring up to the audience on how powerful your strategies are or suggestions are on how you were able to take the student or or any other person that you help from point A to point B because of your strategies and what that feeling was like for you? Yes, yeah, so actually I'll give an example for one of my clients uh, in my dissertation program. Her name is Ada, and before she coming to me, she had been working on her, on her dissertation proposal. So that's the first three chapters of your dissertation. It's a, a pretty big feat to get through that process. But she had been working on it for two years. And so she started working with me January of 2021, and she defended her proposal in May 2021. So she had been working for two years on this document. And just working with me and the strategies I provide, she finished in four months. And so we're having that that transformation, you know, to see it happen and to support her and watch it in real time was amazing. And now she's all, she's finished, she's getting ready to finish up her dissertation. She's been spent probably the next couple of months from now. And so what she couldn't do in two years, we helped her do in four months and now she's off to the races. And so those are the things that I love to see in my clients. And I have a number of stories just like that from folks that I've worked with. Yeah, I mean, it's just not only life changing for them, but also the people who benefit from their graduation, right? What if he's a, you know, or she is a scientist and once she gets her PhD, goes out and invents uh, cancer medicine or, you know, uh, finds a way to go to Mars quicker? You know, there can be so many different ways that go along with it. I have so many like personal traumas that I struggle with also, and I definitely will, will become one of your subscribers because. You know, I set myself on a journey that I will start, I'll write a novel, right? Yeah. And uh, I said, well, it's going to take, it's going to be a 300 page novel and it'll be, I don't know, 40,000 words or something. And I just have to write 500 words a day. 
it sounds easier, right? But you have to execute on it. You have to put the time, you have to put the discipline. So I understand totally about what you're talking about, where you build a plan and you create a schedule and you stick to it as a discipline. So once you put that framework in, they can use it to whether it's right to write, write an editorial or a poem or 3000 page document because the same structure applies. So you're absolutely correct in putting that structure and helping students achieve that. Yeah, I believe there's a system. You create systems and make your process faster. And so I help students a lot of times in my work create systems around their writing. Um, and honestly, it all starts from mindset. It's not even about the writing, to, to be quite honest with you. I'm finding more and more doing this work is that if I can change your mindset, then you can get through this process. Because a lot of times we yeah. have limited beliefs that get in our way of like even sitting down and doing the writing. Right. It's like people process products. You can use it to build software with that approach, right? <laughs> you can use it to build a car. You can build it, use it to build a rocket. So I absolutely agree. It's been an incredible discussion so far, but based on everything you've seen with, with the colleges and universities and education in general, can you talk to us a little bit about where you see education going? If you had a crystal ball to predict, you know, five, 10 years from now, what are some of the big changes you are anticipating in higher education or K through 12 for that matter? Yeah, I think one thing that's going to happen, I think it'll probably be through K-12 and higher, but higher in particular, is this move towards more online education, but online education towards a particular outcome. Like, because you see a lot of universities now, they're starting to do continuing education classes because they're realizing there's a large market out there. I mean, my program is something that a university could offer as a continuing education type of program for, for students, right? And so I think they're more likely seeing like the impact, you know, like say for instance, someone wants to build an Amazon store. Why not create a course to teach someone how to build the Amazon store and make it profitable? That's something that you can go on the market and people are teaching online all the time. I know a number of people teach it, but imagine now universities are like seeing that there's a revenue opportunity that they're missing out on because they are all in this traditional mindset of like, yes, be very intellectual. But now folks don't actually want that. They want like, what skills do I have? So when I leave here, that I can go make an income for my family. So that's definitely a, a, a way I see universities going. And K-12 as well, the pandemic kind of showed K-12 that they have the ability to do online learning if they plan for it. And so I think you're going to start seeing this. And I feel bad for the kids who live in areas that have snow, because now you know, this talk folks like, oh, there's no more need for snow days. Like, we'll, you know, we'll just convert to online learning. So I feel for those folks. Uh, but, you know, that's something that we'll see more and more. Yeah, I agree. I think the hybrid learning is here to stay. Blended learning is here to stay. Very likely flipped classrooms are here to stay because we are understanding more and more that kids can learn by themselves in a self-paced manner. They just need help when they need it and uh, they can be provided in an immersive experience. Obviously, the big issue that we are seeing is how do we give the students the emotional support they need uh, or social support they need, which especially is very critical in elementary and middle schools as they grow and fr frankly in high schools as well. You know, again, Dr. Goings, it's been an incredible honor to talk to you. I learned a lot from this discussion. We'll post some show notes about you, but thank you for joining Eliminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you so much. And I do want to let your listeners know that if you're a doctoral student and need support, um, I have a free training for you. So if you, if you text hashtag free, F-R-E-E, -E, to 301-701-2466, 
uh, I'll give you access to that training so that you can go ahead and get your blueprint to finishing your dissertation in record time. Great. We'll also post this in the show notes so that you can uh, use that information to get the help you need. I, I strongly believe that whether you're trying to write a dissertation or a book or a novel, everything that Dr. Goins has talked about will help you. We'll post all the information about his done dissertation on the show notes. Dr. Goins, thank you so much for joining. We'll look forward to talking to you again pretty soon. Same. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.